Yeah, it's great to come out and see you guys again. Welcome to everybody who is... I'm just going to face that thing that way. That's better. Yeah, hey, so, yeah, it's great to be here. Um, uh, some of your faces are really familiar. Some of the faces aren't so familiar, but that's okay. There's one thing I did want to do. In your bulletin, it talks about the Winter Recharge Camp. I know that Roy already plugged it. Uh, I would just love to plug it again because uh, as a youth department, uh, that is one of our events for the year that we run. And so, you know, it's 18-plus it's camp. It's going to be a lot of fun, uh, a lot of young people coming from around Victoria. So if you want to meet some cool people... And up in a really nice camp place. Camp Aqua is beautiful. I don't know. Who's been there before? Anyone been to Camp Aqua? It's a really good spot. And uh, right close to Mount Buller. So if you're into skiing, snowboarding, all that stuff. Yeah, it's a pretty good place to come. Hey, I'm just going to open up with a word of prayer. <clears throat> Father in heaven, just want to thank you so much for the opportunity to come this morning and we just pray humbly that your spirit will be with us that you'll be present and that you will guide and that you will lead as we open your word we ask in jesus name amen so today i'm going to be talking about the power of culture i want to begin by just um look at that these things are usually allergic to me but i just worked on the first click and i'm just like ah this is amazing so I want to begin by showing you guys a picture. This is a VK Holden Commodore. How many of you have seen this, uh, this sort of car before? Anybody? Okay, two, maybe three. Okay, that's okay. Not so bad. I mean, they're getting a little bit old now, but look, these are awesome cars. My brother, in fact, used to own one of these. He didn't have an SS. Uh, you can see the little SS sticker on there. He just had like the standard Holden Commodore, VK Holden Commodore. And his one was red. It actually looked okay. Yeah, it was, well, it was pretty cool. So you can imagine my brother, uh, one fine afternoon, he was, you guys know I'm talking about, hey, good. <laughs> uh, one fine afternoon, my brother was driving home from work, and, you know, after a big long day, like, you get a little bit tired and all that sort of stuff, and uh, my brother became distracted. Now, he was actually distracted by a young lady, so, uh, yeah, I'm just letting you in on that little bit of a detail. I don't know what color hair she had. Maybe it was blonde, brunette, I don't know. But uh, she distracted him anyways. So, you know, instead of, you know that saying like, eyes upon the road and hands upon the wheel? You guys heard that before? It's in like a song, you know, eyes upon the road, hands upon the wheel. Okay, never mind. So, so instead of eyes upon the road and hands upon the wheel, my brother had um, eyes upon this young lady and hands upon the wheels. that make sense? So he's distracted. <clears throat> that was a real disaster for my brother. For the fact that as he was distracted and, and, and as he was driving along, he drove his car into a power pole. Uh, true story. Straight into the power pole. Well, not really straight because he, he kind of hit it on the side. So he hit it on the side and it dented the door. Uh, but yeah, he was looking at a young lady and hit a power pole. That is the truth. And of course, being a very good law-abiding citizen that my brother is, he did the right thing and he backed off and drove off and um, <laughs> took off home. So a couple of days later, I came out to my parents' house and, and my brother, and he's out there and he's like, he's like sanding a door or, you know, doing something with the door. And I'm, uh, I'm looking at him and I'm thinking to myself, oh, what's this guy doing to his car? So I went over there to have a little chat 
brother, you know? And I said, hey, you know, what's happening? And he looks at me with this very kind of sheepish smile, you could imagine. And he begins to tell me the story about how he drove his car into a power pole while he was checking out a girl. And it was a good dent. He must have hit it like it was a good dent, you know? Here's my brother. I, I, was, I was so tempted to put a picture of him. But then I thought, you know what, I probably shouldn't do that. Distractions. Distractions. There's so many distractions in our life when you think about it. So many distractions that we come across. One of the key distractions, and this is the one that I want to talk about today. One of the key distractions is culture. Culture. Now sometimes culture is that thing that kind of aggressively attacks your Christian beliefs. Values and foundations. That, that happens. Like we're starting to experience that a little bit more regularly here in Australia. Other countries, of course, have experienced that far more regularly. So we're starting to get that. Like sometimes culture will aggressively and specifically attack your beliefs as a Christian. But often culture doesn't specifically and aggressively attack your beliefs as a Christian. Often the biggest issue that, that we have with culture is that it's just there. And when I say it's just there, I mean it's just constantly there. Let me read you a quote. One author reflects on culture. She says, at some point it becomes clear that one of your main jobs as a parent is to counter the culture. What the media delivered to your children by the masses, you're expected to rebut one at a time. But it occurs to me now that the call for parental responsibility is increasing in direct proportion to the irresponsibility of the marketplace. She continues. Parents are expected to, to protect their children from an increasing, increasingly hostile environment. Are the kids being sold junk food? Just say no. Is TV bad? Turn it off. Are there messages about sex, drugs, violence all around? Counter the culture. Here we go. Mothers and fathers are expected to screen virtually every aspect of their children's lives, to check the ratings on the movies, to read the labels on the CDs, to find out if there's MTV in the house next door, all the while keeping in touch with school and in their free time earning a living. It's just there. It's always there. Now here's the crazy thing. This, this lady, Alan Goodman, she actually wrote this article in the 1990s. So you think about that for a second. How much, how much more influential is culture now? There's so many avenues that culture just consistently... Culture will tell you... I told you I was allergic to these things. We will come. It will come for me. Don't worry. Maybe. Oh, here we go. Culture will consistently tell you that bigger is better. But what culture will tell you, types of things leave you chains of debt. Culture won't tell you that. Culture will tell you that. Hey, where's that receipt? Oh, there we go. There we go. It's happening. Culture will tell you that inspiring people look like this. But culture will rarely tell you that inspiring people look like this. Culture will tell you that connecting like this is the way that we should do it in our time. 
Culture will rarely tell you. That connecting like this is valuable. Culture, it's just there. Just is, just there. And it's consistently, consistently and profoundly influencing our lives. This bad boy is not really working for me. I might just ask you to flick him as we go. Is that cool? You're the man, James. Culture. So today I want to talk about culture. Now, here's the thing. What do you do? Like, you know, culture is just consistently there. So what do you do as a Christian to counter culture? I would come up with some big fancy, you know, great idea about what we can do to counter culture. Uh, But instead, I've, I've, I've got a better idea. God came up with one, so why should I? I'm just going to use his. If you flick to the next, to the next slide, that would be awesome. One of my favorite authors talks about this thing that God came to counter culture. It's called the church. And here it is. She says, the church is God's appointed agency for the salvation of men. It was organized for service and its mission is to carry the gospel to the world. From the beginning, it has been God's plan that through his church shall be reflected to the world, his fullness and his sufficiency. So when you think about the church, this little movement that we have right here in the middle of Melbourne City, God has started so many of these. In fact, the broad one where so many of these have branched out. God has started these things to counter culture you ever heard that bible verse right matthew a city set on a hill cannot be hidden our churches should be the cities that are set on a hill shining the goodness of god into the community so here's the thing and this is the big question does the culture within our church function well enough function fierce enough that it actually impacts the culture outside? That's the question. Because you think about the culture that's outside us, right? The culture that is outside us is, is, is profoundly fierce. Like it just consistently presses in. And so if we're actually going to influence the culture that's outside of us, we need to have some kind of beautiful and, and passionate and firing culture actually taking place within our churches. And so the big question is, does that happen? The question for you guys, this is a very new church, you know. Um, I think this church has been functioning for about five years. So, so, so the big question for this church is, are we, are we as individuals contributing to a That's the big question. Are we doing that? Because here's the thing, I visit many churches, part of my job, right? Travel around. In fact, in Victoria, we have 106 companies, groups, and churches in our conference. So that's a lot. So I visited stacks of these churches. And here's something that I'm finding. A lot of churches have, have, have a culture that is very much apathetic to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So when I say apathetic, like in reality, they just come in uh, on a Saturday morning. They kind of play dress-up church. I call it dress-up church because everyone dresses nicely and they come to church. But it's just a once-a-week kind of Sabbath occasion and in reality it's not impacting hardly anybody in the community so we've got so many churches that are functioning but they're not really functioning to contribute to to, to pushing against the culture that's pressing in apathetic towards the gospel of jesus in fact some of the churches that we have are toxic the culture is toxic so we've got to ask ourselves what sort of culture are we building in some churches, 
If you want to flick the slide, James, in some churches you have to play politics to get things done. You know, in some churches you have to have meetings before a meeting as a church. If you flick the next one, in some churches no one wants to take responsibility. What I mean by that is, you know, sometimes I have these discussions with people and as I'm having these discussions with people, they will say things like, they decided to do this at church. Or they decided to do this, or, or they decided to do that. And when I reflect on this, I kind of think to myself, who's they? Because the Bible teaches me that we, like you and me, we are the church. The Bible teaches that, 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 that we're the gathering, that we're the church. And so I'm kind of thinking to myself, who's they? It's us. It's our responsibility. It's our church. It's our calling. We're a priesthood of believers. You know, sometimes people ring me up as a pastor, right? And they say to me, oh, pastor, I met these people and I think they're just, they're just so interested in God. Would you be interested in coming around and doing Bible studies with them? Now, I'm getting bolder as I get, as I get further and further into my pastoral ministry. And I'm starting to say, hey, guess what? That, that, you're the one that met that person. So you do Bible studies with them. Because here's the reality. God did not lead me to them. God led you to them. So, so, so here's the thing. Too, too often in our churches, we're trying to push responsibility. But we need to take responsibility. Some churches, James, conflict is dealt with by talking. James is good on that thing, man. It's better than a clicker. Conflict is dealt with by talking about people, not to people. This is often something that happens in churches. You know, Matthew chapter 18, Jesus gave us this command. He basically said, hey, if you've got a problem with somebody, go and sort it out face to face. Just talk to them. It's easy. Just go and talk to them, sort it out. But you know what? We've developed a new, uh, as Christians, we've developed this very new tactic. It's called Facebook status. And so, you know, if we've got a problem with somebody now, we don't worry. We don't bother talking to them. We don't bother ringing them up. We don't bother doing anything like that. We can't even send them a private message. No, we just shoot it out on our status so everybody can see it. Bad mouth them. Serious. I've seen it so many times. It's, just, it's disgraceful behavior from Christians. I just can't believe it. But it happens culture we could talk more about church culture we could talk about how many churches actually invite non-believers we could talk about how many churches have infighting we could reflect on how many churches resist change because they've done stuff the same way that's culture culture if we go to the next one james there is this, there is a <clears throat> dictionary definition for culture it says the attitudes and behavior characteristic of a particular social so here's the question, what sort of culture are we building in our church? What sort of DNA? Can we have that DNA picture, James? What sort of DNA are we building in our church? If you've got a Bible, come with me. I think there's stacks of Bibles there. Exodus chapter 3, verse 7 and 8. <clears throat> well, actually, Exodus 3 is going to come up on the screen, but soon we're going to have to open it up when we get to the book of Numbers. Exodus chapter 3, verse 7 and 8. Now, why you're... While you're um, turning, if you want to turn, if you want to follow that way, I'm going to give you a little bit of context. I want to talk about culture from the Bible here today. In Exodus chapter 3, or at least in the book of Exodus, it records the story of Moses bringing his people out of Egyptian slavery. So basically God comes to Moses and he says to him, Hey Moses, man, I want you to take these people. I want you to rescue them out of Egyptian slavery. We're going to take them. 
promised land. That's the story of Exodus. Took place about three and a half thousand years ago. Do I have a map? No, I don't have a map. That's cool. So let's go to Exodus chapter 3, verse 7 and 8 on that slide, James. And let's begin. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their suffering. So I've come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Hevite, and the Jebusite. We can flick to the next one, James. That way I know where I'm up to. Where are we up to? Okay, that's good. So here he is. Like, here he is right. The last text just described God coming to Moses. And he basically says to him, Hey, I have seen the afflictions of my people in Egypt. They're in slavery. They're suffering. They're having a hard time. And, 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 and I want to rescue them. I want to take them out of this place. I want to with milk and honey. And so the story begins. Moses basically goes into Egypt. He goes through all these plagues and this crazy stuff. Brings the people out. They've got to cross the sea to get into the wilderness. Like God parts it. They cross the sea. They get into the wilderness. Then they make their way to Mount Sinai. And here we notice something interesting happening. Exodus chapter 32. It says, When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, Come, make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And then we skip to the next one. Aaron said to them, Tear off the gold rings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. Then all the people tore off the gold rings which in their ears and brought them to Aaron. Next one. He took this from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. We can go to the next one. Apis. <clears throat> Apis was a god they worshipped in Egypt. He was associated with health and growth of grain and herds. Fertility. He was associated with the dead, with the underworld and the solar cult. A molten calf. That's what he looked like, essentially. So here it is, right? Moses brings the people out. Now, you think of the story. The story's crazy. Takes them through the sea. Brings them to the, to the feet of the mountain. Moses goes up the mountain for a little bit. He's disappeared. He's gone up to, to, to commune with God. In fact, he's gone to receive the law of God. The people get a little bit distracted and they say, Hey, Aaron, God, that we can worship. And this is what they make. And the funny thing is, when you read the story, right? When you read the story, it's really like they've got their old gods mixed up with their new god. So in, in trying to worship their new god, they've made this, this statue. So in other words, they've associated God with the solar cult. They've associated God with the underworld. They've associated God with the gods of Egypt. Now, is God somebody who wants to be associated with the gods of Egypt? Of course not. In fact, if you read the story, 3,000 of the, of the Israelites were wiped out that day for their sin. 3,000. The next day, God sent a plague through the people. And, he, and here's the point that I'm trying to make. The, 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 the Israelite people came out of Egypt, but the culture of Egypt did not come out of them. Culture. It's always there. It consistently presses upon us. The Egyptians came, oh, sorry, the Israelites came out of Egypt, but Egypt and we continue. Numbers chapter 13. 
If you want to open up your Bibles, number chapter 13. We're going to unfold this story a little bit further. I want to show you the effects. I want to show you what happens when, when, when culture in a church setting gets all messed up. It's a real problem. <clears throat> Numbers chapter 13, verse 1. Same story, same people. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Send out for yourself men so that they may spy out the land of Canaan, which I'm going to give to the sons of Israel. You shall send a man from each of their father's tribes, everyone a leader among them. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran at the command of the Lord, all of the men who were heads of the sons of Israel. So God basically comes along and says, Hey, you're getting close to the promised land, flowing with milk and honey. Told you I was going to take you guys here. It's getting close. Spy it out. Have a look at it. So they go to spy it out. And then we skip over to verse 25. And it says, when they returned from spying out the land at the end of the 40 days, they proceeded to come to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the sons of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And they brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. Thus they told him and said, we went into the land where you sent us, and it certainly does flow with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Now, I don't, I don't want you to miss this here, because this is the picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You, we see these people that are stuck in Israel. We see them stuck in slavery. In some ways, it kind of reflects the, the way that we get stuck in sin in our life. And it draws us in. The culture around us is consistently trying to pull us down. And, and, and we get drawn into this captivity. We get stuck in this captivity. And then God comes along and God basically says to us, Hey, I've got something better for you. I've got a land flowing with milk and honey. Redemption. It's beautiful. I've got something for you. It's, it's all found in Jesus Christ. And so now they get there. In fact, they just taste it. They, they get this glimpse of it. And they see this is a land flowing with milk and honey. It's beautiful. Nevertheless, verse 28 says, The people who live in the land are strong. And the cities are fortified and very large. And moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The giants. Amalek is living in the land of the Negev and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites are living in the hill country and the Canaanites are living by the sea and by the side of the Jordan. In other words, these guys say, hey, th th this place is absolutely beautiful. But when we reflect, when we start to think about the, the, the people that are in there and the fortified cities, there's no way we can take it. Caleb responds. Verse 30. It says, then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, we should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we will surely overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people, for they are too strong for us. The Israelites came out of Egypt, but Egypt was still in them. They did not believe in the power of their God. So what happens? Verse 32. So they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone and spying it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it are all men of great size. 
And notice how the people respond in chapter 14, verse 1. Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. All the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, Would that, would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness? Why is this Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. God brings Israel out of Egypt. But Egypt is well and truly still in Israel. He takes them. He takes them right on the edge of redemption. He shows them the beauty. He shows them that land flowing with milk and honey. But, 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 but for some reason, I mean, these people, I, I don't really get it in my mind. I, I can't quite comprehend it. They've seen God split a sea before them. They felt his thundering presence by the mountainside. But still, they say, the giants in this place are too much. The Anak there, the, the, the descendants of Amalek are there. This, this is just too much for us. And then the spies come back to the congregation and they report to them what's happened. And everybody says, oh, this is not going to happen. Let's get a new leader and go back to Egypt. That's culture. That's culture. And so here's what God says. Chapter 14, verse 28. God says, hey. That's what you want. That's what you can have. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will surely do to you. Your corpses will fall in this wilderness. Even all your numbered men, according to your complete number, from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me, surely you shall not come into the land in which I swore to sell you, except Caleb the son of Japuna and Joshua the son of Nun. Your children, however, whom you said would become a prey, I will bring them in, and they will know the land which you have rejected. But as for your corpse, will fall in this wilderness. So in other words, God comes along these people, and essentially this is what he says. God comes along these people and he says to them, if you don't want to take the promised land, no worries. You can stay here. I'm all good with that. Now, James, if we flick a slide. Numbers 26. Notice this. We've just about gone all the way from, we've just about covered 40 years, essentially. Notice this. Numbers 26. Numbers 26, God commands Moses to take a census of the people. In other words, count the people up. Count these Israelite people up. And the Bible says, these are the ones counted by Moses and Eleazar the priests. When they counted the Israelites in the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho. Not one of them was among those counted by Moses and Aaron the priests when they counted the Israelites in the desert of Sinai. For the Lord had told those Israelites they would surely die in the wilderness. And not one of them was left except Caleb the son of Japuna and Joshua the son of Nun. This is the picture. When, when, yeah, let's stay there. This is the picture. When God brought the people out of Egypt, first time, he told Moses to take a census of the people. All the men who were 20 years and up. Why? Because they can fight. Take a census of the people. So they took a counting of the people. Now, this faithless generation decided that they did not want to take the promised land that God said that they could take. And so God says, hey, no worries. You guys can stay here in the wilderness and die. All good. If that's what you want, then that's what you can have. 
And now we come along to Numbers chapter 26. We've moved something like 40 years. God says to Moses, take another census. And what did the Bible say? There was not one of the generation left. So what God said would happen, happened. They were finished. All the people of that faithless generation were wiped out. Now, if we put this into a big context, we put this into the big picture. There is a profound lesson for us here as a church. God promises to each and every church that, that, that he wants to take us to a place flowing with milk and honey. In other words, God has got blessing upon, upon blessing. God wants and we say, why wants to grow our churches? No doubt about that. I mean, is God, is God sitting up there thinking to himself, no, I don't want my churches to grow. I don't want people to receive the gospel of Jesus. I don't want people to be in the kingdom. Like surely God is not there. Not at all. So God is sitting up there, no doubt in my mind. And God is saying, I want to build my kingdom. I want to grow my kingdom. So he wants to bring these people out. of. He wants to take them into the promised land. There's no doubt about that. But this generation of people decide that they don't want to do it. And so here's what God says. Fine, if you don't want to do it, this is what I need. I need a new generation. If you don't want to do it, this is what I need. I need a new future. That scares me. That scares me. It scares me because what if, what if I am a person who is contributing to, to, to a negative culture in a church? What if I'm a person who is slowing down the kingdom of God? What if that's me? That's scary. And I want to tell you, as I said, I visit a lot of churches. If this wasn't on YouTube, I'd tell you guys a story about one of our local churches, but I can't do it. I'll tell you a story about a church in the States instead. Here's this preacher. Goes to visit a church one day. So you can imagine. Wakes up. Packs the family together. Jump in their minivan or whatever it is. Cruises on out. They get to this church and they walk into the building and they look at the building and the building is just huge. That's a true story. I heard the preacher telling the story. The building's huge. They're looking around and they're thinking, hmm, this is a big building. All the chairs in this building. There's like 10 people. This thing must have been firing in its glory day, this, this church. And so, anyways, the, the preacher thinks, oh, well. Never mind, we'll go and we'll take a seat. So he goes down to take a seat. He takes his whole family, right? They sit in like a, just imagine a pew like that. So the family, they, they sit in a pew like that. And, and as they're sitting there, they're kind of just enjoying church, like church is running out its normal course, how it works. And he notices this, this couple. They walk in, an elderly couple. They walk into the church. And as they walk into the church, as this elder, elderly couple walk into the church, the... The preacher kind of glances them and he notices that they're giving him the eye. Do you know what I mean by the eye? Yeah, they're kind of like looking at this guy like, you know, probably over the top of their glasses or something like, you know, like, hmm. Who's this? That's the kind of eye they're giving him. And um, he's like, okay, no worries. Songs start. And you know, like in churches, when, when they sing, like often people will stand up. So this guy and his family, they stand up. Now, here's a crazy thing that happens. When he stands up with his family, these two people, they quickly shoot into the chair where they're sitting and, and kind of make their way in 
where this preacher is sitting with all of his kids and family and stuff. They're like really tight now, you know, like it's, it's a pew, like an old school pew. So, so they're like really tight now and he's got to kind of like cram in there and just sit and he's like, what the? But he realizes this is the thing. He was getting the eye because he sat in the chair. That's why he was getting the eye. That was a true story. This church is closed. The conference closed it. Why? Culture. Must have been big one day. It was a huge building. But now it's dead. That's what culture will do. The Bible is so clear that if we have the wrong culture building in our church, it will kill it. It will absolutely kill it. So as our church, I consider this our church because out of all the churches in our conference, if we get a spare day, this is where we come. Melbourne City. If, if, if our church is going to go somewhere, we've got to build the right culture. And who's that start with? It starts with you and me. So I want to give us three things to think about. Three things to think about. James, can you shoot up? Next one. That was my church story. Man, these flickers. I don't know what it is. It must be, I'm serious. Like they never work for me. It must be something in my body. Could be the culture, man. Thanks for that, Dave. Number one, think leadership. <clears throat> Three tips, right? Number one, think leadership. Do you know what? There's this time of year. I think it's the most important time of year for a church. They're going to show that have been going to church for a little while. Every year this church, or most churches, have this time where, that they call nominating committee. My point exactly. <laughs> nominating committee. Everyone's like, oh, nominating committee. You know, when nominating committee comes around, people dodge the pastor. Because they know he's going to ask him to do something or ask him to be on the committee or, or something like that. And, and so they're dodging the pastor. Um, we, we just hate nominating committee. But I think it's, I think personally, it is the most essential time in a church's year. Why? Because that's when we pick our leaders. And here's a reality. Ministries will rise and fall on leadership. That's a reality. If you have a poor leader leading out of a ministry, there's a high chance that that, lead, that, that ministry is just going to go. If you have good leaders leading, there's a high chance. Christ-centered leaders leading, there's a high chance it's going to fly. But if we pick poor leaders, there's a high chance it's just going to go. Our church needs leaders. We absolutely, we're absolutely desperate for leaders. Leaders who are? James, leaders who are going to, number one, work, simply talk. I remember this meeting I sat in once. <clears throat> I was a pastor of the church, and one of the elders was verbally giving me a list of all the things he thought I should do as a pastor, right? Now, he probably didn't realize he was doing it, but that's what he was doing. Sort of verbally giving me this list of all the things that I, sh I should do as a pastor. And I just sat there, I was very polite. Yes, thank you, sir, no worries. Very good. And... Uh, <clears throat> Next year, this, this elder from his, his duty as an elder. And what I noticed throughout the year is he did basically nothing for the church. Basically nothing. He probably paid his tithes faithfully and that sort of thing. But when he mission, basically did nothing. So, here's what I want to say. Eldership is not a title to air your opinion. Leadership 
Let's broaden it. I don't, I just want to, I don't want to pick on elders. Leadership is not a title to air your opinion in a church. Because see, we've got too many people in church things that want to air their opinions. You think about it, right? When churches have board meetings, when they have business meetings, when they have all that sort of stuff, like people come together and everyone's got a view. Everyone's got a big opinion. Everyone wants to do this. Everyone's got the most fantastic and fandangle answer. But when it comes to saying, okay, who's going to do this? All the hands just stay quiet. No one puts their hands up. No one's keen. No one's willing to stand out there. Our church need leaders who are going to work. We need it. We need leaders who model. I'm not talking about bikini models. I'm talking about people to come to our church on Saturday. And if we want our members to invite people on Saturday, then we need to invite people on Saturday. If we want our people to be in life groups as leaders, then we need to be in life groups. If we want our people to give generously to the church, then we need to give generously to the church. We need to model what we believe. If we're not modeling it, nobody else is going to do it. In fact, we'll just become this stale culture that never moves for the kingdom of God. We just sit plain and stable. We've got to model as leaders. Number three, we need leaders who are full of courage. Why? Because our culture is fierce and it pushes consistently and so we need people who are willing to stand up in the middle of that with a christ-centered worldview and bring glory and honor and praise to god people who are not willing to back down people who are fierce with courage so think about that for a second who's that person in your church i'm not sure i'm not sure but they're, they're the kind of people we need to lead they're the kind of people we need to lead now here's what i did want to say in particular, needs leaders. You know, it's easy to kind of rock in once a month. It's easy to rock in twice a month, whatever. And, and look, visitors are always welcome. I mean, this is, this is a place where the kingdom of God is being built. We want, we love people to come here. But the reality is we need people to commit. If, 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 you, if you see this as a powerful movement of God, if you see this as a church that could be this light in this community that could reach out to the people. I mean, when I drive through the city at night, I just see, you know, in the skyscrapers, people everywhere, people walking around, people doing this, people doing that. And I ask myself, if I could see this little light in their hearts, right? If I could see something beating in their hearts to show that they've got this commitment, that they've got this relationship with Jesus Christ, I wonder how many would be lit up. This is an absolute mission field. But we need leaders. We need commitment. We need people who will stand up. Number two, we need to think mission. Think leadership. Number two, think mission. It was nice talking to Dave and Sula. I'm going to pick you guys out. Sorry, Dave and Sue. I hope we're friends enough by now. They've just started the Pathfinder Club. And they said, this is something that can be for the community. That's awesome. Because I tell you this, I drive around and visit Pathfinder clubs and I'm constantly telling these Pathfinder clubs, this is a ministry for the kids in the community. You know, why do we have like, this is the thing that gets me about churches. I, churches like come together sometimes, right? And they, they, they consistently worry about building this giant building and, and, and why are we building a building? Oh, we need somewhere for our adventurers. We need somewhere for our Pathfinders. We need somewhere for our Sabbath schools. And then what we do is we, we have all of our ministries in our in, in our building by ourselves that nobody ever sees. And I just think to myself, what, wouldn't we be better off just to hire a community center right in the middle of the street 
and have all of our ministries there. Adventures outside in the car park, in, in the playground, sorry. Not in the car park, that'd be bad. Adventures outside in the playground, you know, where everybody can see us and people walking by and say, hey, I'd love my kid to be part of that. Mission. All of our decisions, we should be consistently thinking mission. Number three, think Jesus. You guys thought I wasn't going to preach about Jesus today. Some of you are going to condemn me. I was always getting there. John 15, 5. Can you shoot that one up, please, James? I'm the vine. You are the branches. These are the words of Jesus. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do how much? Nothing. Reality is, friends, if we aren't connected to Jesus as a church, if we aren't connected to Jesus as a church, we are going nowhere. Absolutely nowhere. And when I say we, that's on an individual level. That's not just coming to church on Sabbath morning. That's just not taking place in the exchange discussion afterwards. That's on an individual level day to day. Because here's a reality. God wants to speak into our lives. I am convinced of that. Live with purpose, right? You remember we did live with purpose a couple of weekends ago. Sunday night after the second meeting, I was wasted. Tired from preaching, talking, having discussions with people. I needed I needed God to speak into my life. I needed it. So I tried to pray. I fell asleep. How many of you guys done that before? Don't lie. That's awesome. Thanks for your honesty. It always happens, right? Like you start praying and then you're like so tired you fall asleep. So I'm praying and I woke up like an hour later or something and I'm just like, oh man, I still need God to speak. I could feel the voice. I still need God to speak into my life. This time I managed to stay awake. Started to pray again. 15 minutes my heart was at peace. Just 15 minutes. God spoke into my life and gave me peace. God will speak into our lives. If Jesus is not real, I'm a raving lunatic. I'm a raving lunatic. Because I felt his presence. As I've opened his word, I've, 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 I've had messages from him. I've never had him talk to me audibly. But consistently, God is speaking messages into my life. So if he's not real, I'm a raving lunatic. I'm cool with that. Because I'm a happy raving lunatic and my life is a lot better than people who say that I'm a raving lunatic. So I'm good with that. No worries. Without Jesus, friends, we're not going anywhere. But our world needs him. And as a church, we're not going to get there until we let him speak into our lives. I want to tell you guys a story. It was up. <clears throat> it was January 1977. Uh, sorry, 1997. It was a British yachtsman. His name was Tony Ballymore. Some of you guys might have heard of him. He was solo, uh, solo sailing in the deep southern ocean. And you can imagine a storm came and there was waves that were like five stories tall. That's his yacht. Flipped it. Fortunately for him, he was able to kind of curl up in the cabin and there was water up one side, like waist deep, and maybe knee deep the other side. He's basically just sitting there in this water in this cabin, you know, you can imagine. And the waves are still pumping, like it's still just... Slows down after a while, he's stuck in there. He swims out, tries to free his lifeboat, couldn't work, comes back, takes a breath. Tried like 12 times to get out to free his life raft so that he could escape this place. Out and back, out and back, out and back, didn't work. 
And so now he's just sitting there in his cabin, starts to get frostbite on his fingers. It's like two degrees in water. He's freezing. Got a few rations, but he literally thinks I'm going to die. This is me. I'm finished. He's in the middle of the ocean, in the middle of nowhere. An Air Force plane flies over, sees him. They drop a pin, some sort, some sort of communicating. I don't really know how it works. But basically, he must have understood it. He's banging on the side of his hull of the boat, you know, like just hoping that somebody will pick up the signal, know that he's there. In the morning, ship comes on by, HMAS Adelaide. It's a true story. Sailors come out. They start banging on the outside of his ship. And when he hears it, when he hears it, he f- swims out. There he is, the little white speck. It's a bad photo, I know, but look, it's a true photo. There he is. Swims out. Can we flick to the next slide, please, James? I don't have it. I'm going to read you the quote. This is what he said. When I looked over at the Adelaide. So that's when he swims out, right? I could only get the tremendous ecstasy that I was looking at life. I was actually looking at a picture of what life was about. It was heaven. Absolute heaven. I really, really never thought I would reach that far. Life. We live in a dark culture. Think about the culture we live in for a minute. We live in a dark culture. And there are people, so many people, that are drowning in it. Absolutely drowning in it. But we have the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have the gospel of Jesus Christ. But here's a reality. If you don't connect with Jesus Christ, you will never share the gospel of Jesus Christ. It just won't occur to you to think about it. So how many of us are connecting into him? How many of us are connecting into him so that the culture of this church becomes an absolute light in this place that surrounds us? There are so many people here that we can reach for Jesus. So many. Culture. Culture is what counts in our churches. So what do we do? Number one, think leadership. Can you... Can you contribute here as a leader? I believe that there's so many of you here that can. I'm not talking about our pastors here, by the way, when I say leadership. Because I don't, I don't know if you guys have noticed, but the pastors here work fairly hard. And they're very committed. Like they've given their whole life for this church. When I say the pastors, I'm not talking about me. I don't really come here that much. I'm talking about Roy and Jinha. They've given so much for this church. So what about us? Are we willing to... Are we we willing to give as well? Think leadership, think mission. And number three, think Jesus. Thank you.